Welding's a simple process and it's fun because you can chase that perfection forever and never find it. Every time I weld is is a new new experience of the same thing. It's just like say it's a therapeutic experience. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Kyle from Kuhnhausen Metal Concepts. Kyle is a high-end custom car builder. He's had the privilege of competing and winning at the SEMA Battle of the Builders Young Guns competition a number of years ago. He is now actually a judge for that same competition. Kyle has had a fairly long history being involved in motorsport fabrication. He was lucky enough to actually grow up with his father running a body shop and a mechanical shop so I guess you could say that his destiny was predetermined but he's taken what he learned from his father and really doubled down adding to his skills and trying to perfect every element of the fabrication process. Now one of the elements of building a custom car is that a lot of people get put off by the idea of doing their own fabrication work and on face value it can seem a little bit daunting but as we talk to Kyle we find out what is actually involved, what the sort of financial input is going to be required to get yourself set up with with some of the basic equipment required to do your own fabrication, how you can learn the skills, how you can then perfect the skills, the sort of mindset that is required to work at the level that Kyle's working at and of course that's not something that everyone needs to aspire to in order to build your own project cars maybe in your back shed or garage. On top of this we also talk about the importance of some of the advances we've seen in modern technology over the Kyle's career specifically here around 3D modelling, uh, his use of SolidWorks, how he learned these skills and now how he's putting this into action with his current builds to improve the quality of the build, the reliability of the build and ensure that when everything goes together it fits and works exactly as expected. You may be surprised to find out that it's actually not as difficult to master these skills as maybe you would think. Before we get started with our interview though just a little insight into High Performance Academy for those who are maybe fresh to the Tuned In podcast. HPA is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune engine management systems, build performance engines, build reliable wiring harnesses. We also cover race driver education, race car setup and fabrication topics. All of these are covered with video based training courses that you can take from anywhere in the world. This means you can learn from the comfort of your own place and you can learn at your own pace. Relevant to today's podcast of course is our fabrication courses. We've got our Motorsport Fabrication Fundamentals course which as its name implies teaches you the fundamentals behind motorsport fabrication. Again as I already alluded to I know a lot of enthusiasts think that this is going to be a harder skill to learn than it really is. This course will teach you some of the tools that you'll require to get started as well as some of the core techniques that you can use when you're working on your own projects. We've also got a library of worked examples in there which are relevant real tasks that you can complete on your own car project. Moving on from this of course welding is one of the key elements when it comes to motorsport fabrication and we can't really talk about welding and motorsport without talking about TIG welding and we've got our practical TIG welding course which will teach you how to get your start 
with TIG welding. Uh, in particular, there are a lot of complexities around setting your TIG welder up for a particular material, how to prepare the material, what tungsten you should be using, what your settings for your TIG should be, what your consumables like filler rods should be, as well as the actual technique. This course will teach you all of that. We give you basic setups for a variety of the common materials that you're going to come across in a motorsport environment such as aluminium, titanium, stainless steel, mild steel and chromoly just to name a few. This will mean that you can hit the ground running and start laying down quality and reliable beads of weld really quickly. Of course there is still a element of getting time on the torch that you are still going to need to put in in order to master these skills but this will give you a head start start. At the end of our course we again have a library of worked examples where you can watch the TIG welding process that we teach being applied on a variety of different materials and different fabrication tasks. Uh, if you want to investigate either of those courses we'll put a link in the show notes to each of them and of course as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 that'll get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, with that introduction out of the way, let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks for joining us today. And as we always do, let's get started by finding out how you got involved in the automotive industry. What's your background? Uh, my background is I had no choice, really. Uh, automotive was always um, kind of it for me. Uh, personally, I, I chased it, but also um, my dad was just a car nut from the day I was born and, you know, far before that. So... I grew up in his shop. I mean, there's a playpen. There's pictures of me at like one year old sitting on top of his big block air filter in a diaper and, and, you know, always stealing his wrenches. And I did that my whole childhood. He owned a body shop, mechanic shop. So I was always riding my BMX bike around there and, you know, causing chaos and um, just worked up to the ranks. Uh, age 12, I went to work for him full time uh, during like summer, winter and, and spring break from school. That was that was kind of the last time I ever had a kid break riding BMX. I, I went straight to work and, and washed cars for him, swept floors, uh, just general stuff. Worked my way up to high school, got really into welding. And, and I started welding about 13 or 14, uh, helping my dad. He was always building hot rods out of this, this same garage I'm in now. Um, and so I'd build, we built like a 39 Lincoln Zephyr with a, a Art Morrison chassis, LS, Air Ride, all that stuff. Uh, 42 Willys Woody, just some some obscure things, not the typical stuff we work on now, but I was always learning and, and he let me do way more than he should have, um, which is awesome because that's the only way you learn is by screwing stuff up. But um, I, I worked through worked through the ranks there, got into roll cages and, and four-wheel drive truck bumpers, and I probably used... Uh, I probably made 10 grand with a hundred dollar Harbor Freight pump bender uh, and a MIG welder as a kid. Cause I would pack the tubes with, with dry sand, weld cap the ends, count the pumps on this, this Harbor Freight. I mean, we're talking the roughest model they have. Like it was a hundred dollars tops. Um, and I got to where I probably built three or four full roll cages as a kid with that. Um, just by counting my pumps and I built boat towers. I built, Toyota truck bumpers. I I built several. One of them got tested. My buddy rear-ended the heck out of somebody with it and didn't hurt it. So I knew I was doing stuff semi-right. Um, got 
got to college, went to, uh, I started in engineering. Um, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer, I thought, and did a year of that, did good in it. But I mean, you, as, as good as you can do in the first year that you don't really get to do much. And that's probably why I would switch to business because I thought, well, I can always run a business and just pay an engineer when I need engineering. And, and uh, it's funny because now a decade and some change later, I wish I'd have stuck with that. But uh, you know, that's another story with what the how hot CAD has got in the the automotive realm. You know, you can't really just throw stuff together anymore. It all kind of starts at more of an engineering standpoint. That's more of the mindset um, to utilize all the, the facilities around um, to help you build stuff at a higher quality. But that's how I got started and, and stuck with it. And I'm learning every day still and and uh, really enjoying it. Okay, you, you've just talked about a bunch of of subjects that we're going to dive into in a, a lot more detail. Before we sort of do that, though, just to, to flesh out that background, uh, you, you said your, your dad was running both a mechanical and, and body shop side of things. You've obviously already mentioned you, you kind of developed a passion for the, the welding side of things, which has led you into what you're doing now. I'm, I'm interested, so how did that passion come out, come about when you had both the body work side of, of the business and the mechanical side? The mechanical spinning spanners just wasn't really your, your thing? I, I mean, I, I enjoy anything that's a challenge and, and of course, automotive, um, but it's a little bit more uh, re- repetitive and not really passion based. It's kind of like, here's the time, you know, it's usually flat rate. Here's the time you've got, get it done before that time's up or else you don't make any money and just keep them coming. Uh, and that, you know, that's great business. That's a much better business than a fabrication business. <laughs> um, but that just the passion just isn't there. And and what really I was passionate about was throughout the time that him and his business partner were, were running that, um, and they're still running it to this day, they always did drag racing. They always had a drag car around. And so we were always either working on that or, or one of my dad's friends would have him like, say, building a 39 Lincoln Zephyr or something, you know, in, in the garage, kind of a side hustle project. Um, that's the stuff I really enjoyed. So they had a 69 Camaro, uh, drag car door car that actually ended up in New Zealand now. Um, and it's still running there. It's black 69 Camaro with a big 632 big block. But I just, I kind of cut my teeth building a little stuff for that and helping him refurbish that. And that's just kind of like, man, that's way more fun than pushing the, yeah. pushing this panel out on this Toyota Camry. I, I I totally understand. I mean, I kind of went through the same thing with with my own shop. I mean, I didn't get any personal satisfaction out of doing timing belts on Subarus, for example. But there's more money in a job where oh, yeah. you can charge. I don't know. Let's say four hours, and a good tech can probably do that job in in two or, or less or whatever it is. And you know, you know the parts, you know the time, and you can kind of repeat that process. But I mean, I, I think I personally would have gone stir crazy if I was doing you know, four or five timing belts a day, five days a week. It, it doesn't really speak to that passion for for building custom parts and and making cars, improving cars that that I personally had. And I think it sounds like you share exactly that. So I mean that. That's a decision that anyone who's looking to go into that automotive industry or start a business in it does need to sort of uh, come to terms with and and understand the ramifications of the the choices you're making. 
to, to talk a little bit about your, your training, and one of the questions I always have is, you know, is there any formal qualifications that you had? You talked about that one year of the uh, mechanical engineering degree, but in terms of your fabrication skills, I mean, it, it sounds like you worked in the perfect place with, with a, a dad who can basically teach you everything you, you needed to know. How much of that was sort of passed down from your dad versus self-taught and you just experimenting and learning along the way? Yeah, I mean, it, like say, uh, my dad's always been my biggest hero and mentor, and so he he always took the time to teach me stuff I was curious about, or at least plant the seed and give me what he could from a knowledge base there. Um, but if I had to say, you know, typeify us both, he's more of a get it done guy. He'll get it done any way he can now, and I'm more of like a meticulous. Let's plan it. Let's do it perfect. Let's execute it at the highest level. And if something isn't absolutely right, I just, I can't, it doesn't work. So, um, he taught me a lot of, you know, early MIG welding, early car construction. He's the master of engine building, electronics and body work. I mean, he, there's nobody I would rather have helping me out, you know, on his spare time than, than him because he's just so good at all those things. But when you switch to the fabrication side and the high end construction and building, that's kind of where I like, he planted the seed, but I really took it and ran and, and I was just always so surpassed what, uh, what he was doing with it. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, just as far as like the TIG, as soon as I started TIG welding and then on up to roll cages, chassis, suspension design, um, how, you know, how we're going to put this entire car together, bumper to bumper and build something at a level that can go to SEMA and, and, you know, do more than just sit there and look pretty. Um, that's kind of more self taught, but I wouldn't say I could do it without his support, you know, the whole way through and, and really sure. filling in where, you know, we, we kind of both specialize, like wherever I'm weak, he's strong. And, and so we kind of have grown to those strengths because there's no sense, taking over his job as the lead body guy here when he can do it 10 times faster and way better than I can. So we kind of stay in our lanes, but together get to the same destination. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And in terms of that self-taught element, obviously these days it's getting easier and easier. There's more and more resources out there. What are you using? Let, let's specifically uh, target in on TIG welding, which which is something that takes a little bit of time to get to a point where you can lay down a weld that is going to be safe and strong, but it's a whole different level when you're wanting to lay down welds at the level you're working at, something that is you know, a, a visual work of art as well as being uh, actually fit for purpose. You know, th- There's two very different elements there. So wh- what did you do? What were your resources that you were using to advance your knowledge in TIG welding? When I was learning that, I uh, what had happened was my dad uh, bought a ESOB. It's been now; it's been probably two decades now. An ESOB one sixty TIG welder, really basic TIG welder, non inverted ACDC TIG. Uh, you know, you had to change a tungsten out to a green one. I haven't had to do that in forever, um, but uh, to do AC. But I, you know, he he bought that, and then I just started playing, and he was playing, and and. Uh, it was mainly just self intuitive, self taught. I didn't, I didn't really, YouTube wasn't really as big as it is now back when I was learning all that stuff. And then by the time I had a grasp on, you know, how the dials change, what, uh, it, it you know, it, it wasn't really, didn't really make any sense to go to YouTube at that point. Cause it's kind of intuitive. I mean, 
you know that there's say there's 10 knobs on a advanced machine or buttons nowadays or even moving to lcd screens uh but each one of those affects something in a different way and so in order to in order to cheat and you know know all the you need to know all the components and how they interact and just trying stuff, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to turn this to 10, leave everything else the same and see how that affects it. Okay. Wow. That didn't do what I thought it would do. And okay, put that back. Let's tweak this. And, and just my process of elimination really, and, and just having a good mental grasp on watching the pool and, and letting the pool dictate what's happening. And, and then also knowing that the rod goes where the heat is. Um, once you have those things, you just you just need torch time. So I don't know how many miles I've I've welded over my lifespan, but it's been a lot. So just just learning nowadays, it's there's people that are really picky about their settings and and all the right setup. And I wish I was one of them. And I wish I tracked more what I do. But it's really kind of the seat of my pants. I I can kind of manipulate a puddle any way that the machine's acting it's it's tuned in right now wherever i like it and i literally leave it for everything i do that way the only change would be like pulse or non non-pulse so okay we'll talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of welding as we go through this but uh, i mean I, I guess the the thing with tig welding that those who are new to it uh, will find is that initially it can be a, a little bit daunting, maybe a little bit frustrating, but just like any skill, it's one of those things where, as you mentioned, time on the torch is, is there's really no replacement for it. Obviously, you need that background understanding of the the fundamentals, you know, how how the machine works, what what you're actually going to be doing, and at least for the the best part, some basic settings to get you going. But at that point. Yeah, it's it's just going to be a case of of practice and perfecting that that skill. And I mean, I think some of the more modern machines as well do simplify that process mm-hmm. with some of the setup modes where all you really need to do is choose your material and maybe the thickness, and it kind of will dial in those settings in the background to to really give you something that's going to be workable. And then you can go into a, a more advanced or pro mode where you can actually tweak each of the individual settings mm-hmm. if if you're at that level and, and have that knowledge. I think that basic setting, at least on our our Miller, is uh, is probably sufficient for ninety five percent of welders. Now, before we go into some of those more specifics, I wanted to talk a little bit about, this is something I noticed on your Instagram profile, you are a judge for the SEMA Builders uh, Young Guns Judge, uh, Battle of the Builders, I should say, Young Guns Judge. So uh, for a start, just tell us, what does that actually mean? What What's that title mean to you? Absolutely. It, uh, I, and I'm fortunate to be a part of this program, um, but SEMA has the Battle of the Builders every year. And it's kind of what you aspire to, if you're a serious car builder and you're at SEMA, it's kind of what you aspire to enter because, um, you know, you'll get to you'll get to kind of test your metal against the best because you always have the Ring Brothers, the Roadster Shop, Rad Rides. I mean, I, I, I'm more specific in the hot rod category, although I build all kinds of cars, um, but that's kind of my wheelhouse. Um, and, and that's where the best of the best, you got BBT Fab, I mean, super high-end builds. And so it's like, well... I kind of fancy what I do here. Let's go see how we test up against the big boys. There's four segments. There's uh, truck and off-road, hot rod and hot rod truck. There's import, and then there's young guns. And the young guns is kind of my facet that I judge, although the judging is very collab- you know, collaborative at first. All four of us will kind of co-mingle and share opinions. And you know, we obviously all respect each other's opinions because we've all built cars and been part of the program before we were judges. 
Um, but I, mine is the 29 and younger category. So, it, and it used to be 27 when I was competing, but now it's 29. So it's even, even broader for up and coming hot rod builders to, to get in and not have to compete against the likes of rad rides and the, the, the huge players that have gigantic budgets, lots of skills, lots of experience, and just get to face other people that are kind of in the same circumstances. So, uh, Am I right in saying you, you actually entered this in that, as you mentioned, 27 and under when you were involved and you, you won that at SEMA? Is that correct? Yep. 2018, I took the uh, the Insanity 240Z gray dots and it was, it was pretty popular, uh, won it. And then followed up that effort with a, the Ballistic Beige Corvette in 2019 and 2020. And then after that, they came to me and, and said, hey, we need a judge. Would you be interested? And the program really helped elevate my career. I went from, I, I built nice stuff and I, I knew it, but nobody else really knew it because I'm from a 5,000 person town that's kind of nowhere special. And so I did that. And then all of a sudden, all these big eyes are on me and, and my people that I really hold high, high in regard are coming to me and telling me how good of a job I did. And that's awesome. And it's, it's, uh, it's really cool to be involved now on the backside and be the person who gets to help guide these, these young up and comers and, and help, help steer them in the right direction to maybe get some of that, that same amplification that I got through SEMA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, SEMA for, for anyone who hasn't been, it's hard to comprehend the the scale and, and size of it. We're, we're recording this uh, about a, a week or so out from it and uh, we, yep. we will be attending as HPA for the first time in, in a couple of years, which we're pretty excited about. Uh, but you know, th- this sounds like it, it's just a launching pad for a business or a career if you can do well on that stage. What sort of media exposure does this give you? or What, what did you get when you won? Yeah, I mean it's just incredible. I mean not only just the the knowing that out of all the 27-year-olds that entered there the the top I mean the way it works is there's a top 40 that's judged by the four judges and then we pick the top 12 now. Uh, I think it's top 40 and top 12. It, things have changed a few over the years, but generally uh and and then so all four judges pick their top 3 and that's who's going to be the the top 12 from there, it's all in their hands. So the top 12 people in there are the only people judging each other. And so you could, you could like, I was a 27 year old kid showing my stuff to the likes of Kyle Tucker from Detroit speed. I mean, it's like, it's unreal. It's I, not only do I get to be involved, but I get to like people that I've always looked up to, I get to show them what I've done. And, and I think, you know, I think that it was a good showing. Um, it's it's just an incredible launch pad, and from there I got to lead the SEMA parade in 2018. I was the very first car out to ignited. I was on the cover of SEMA magazine. I was on the cover of Pass Mag. I won a Gran Turismo Best Asian Import Award. What I mean, just I was on you know, Super Street had a a little online bid on me, and a few more magazine features, online features, and then from there it's you you know. I'm looking for like 0.001% of car enthusiasts to build them cars at a very high level. And so it just helps bring that, that top tier clientele to you so that you guys can build even more special things. Definitely. 
Moving forward now, as as a judge, you know, for those who haven't been to SEMA, I mean, the quality of the cards is is exceptional. Even even those who maybe don't make that that top forty or top twelve, but you know, what are you looking for as a judge? What sort of ticks your boxes? What stands out to you? What speaks to you in in terms of these custom car builds? I'm looking for mini me. I'm looking for somebody that really put it all on the line. Like my build, I I spent five years building. I started my business to do that build. Uh, on the side of working as a full-time flat rate auto body tech. And I put, I mean, I never, there wasn't a day of the week I didn't go home, you know, until 10 PM at night or uh, as soon as I got off work, I was grinding all weekends. I was grinding. I was putting in crazy hours. I was doing everything I could to come and and give a good showing. And I could have easily, that could have all amounted to nothing very easily, but I just believed in what I was doing. So I can kind of spot that. I, I know when, when these young people really believe in what they're doing, irregardless of how quality the car is. And then I kind of look at the cars and I go, what, you know, what skill set are you showing me? Um, I, I don't necessarily want to see the absolute highest quality car. I want to see the most quality builder, um, what that builder brings to the table and how they're going to bring those skill sets to future builds in SEMA. Cause we, we, you know, we don't want to just have you here as a young gun. We want to see you what you're going to do in the hot rod division. Once you age out of the young guns and, and continue to contribute to the industry. Um, so judging is kind of, I kind of get my own take on it, which is really cool, but I just, I just make sure that I'm looking at everybody through the same lens and giving everybody a, a fair, fair shot, not really looking at circumstances so much as, who you are and what you brought to put in front of me and then how you present it too. Cause you can tell a lot by how a young person presents what they did to you. Um, just, I mean, enthusiasm, like the, this, this should be your baby. You're showing me, you know, this is your resume. So make sure you sell it well. Yeah. I, I think enthusiasm and passion really sort of shines through in, in any build. A little bit of a tangent, but you just mentioned with, with that particular build, you know, it, it took you five years and you're sort of doing it after hours and I'm guessing on weekends. Uh, I'm interested, how, how do you stay motivated over a five-year build? And there must have been times where you sort of just absolutely lost enthusiasm and, and didn't want didn't to look at it, or, or did you literally just stay stuck to your guns the whole way through? Anybody that's ever built a car, and I mean built a car from bumper to bumper, every little micro detail is paid attention to is going to have periods where they're just not into it. <laughs> it's, it's, I hate this car. This sucks. I'm just treading water. I'm not getting anywhere. Um, but the the lowest lows can't touch what the highest highs can do. Cause when you really comprehend what you want to do and put execute that, and then every little detail really turns out to be as, you know, as much a signature, detail as it it should be and you get to the big stage like SEMA like I went there with no I I had no preconceived notion that people were going to love this thing or it was going to get the response it was I was just so thrilled to be going to SEMA because I'd I'd attended five years prior you know each year for five years prior and just got inspired every year I'd go back and I'd go I can really do this you know people here might not know it but I can I can compete at this level and I can build a car at this level. And I just took the inspiration from every year attending and, and poured that right back into the build. And, and obviously having a client that let me, let me just go wild. I mean, that car was me uh, to a T, you know, within a budget, but me to a T. And so just being able to express myself like that, it was very motivating. And then when I got the, 
you know, the reward of seeing how people interacted with that car at the end, it was, it was just like, must be incredibly satisfying. It was like crack. It was like, okay, I need to, <laughs> I need to start the next one yesterday and, and, you know, let's do this again, even though it was so much pain and anguish through the process and, and bad days and, and hard days and problems that don't seem like you can solve. But when it's done, it's, it's worth it. And so you just kind of, now I just feed off the feeling knowing that if I trust the process, it's gonna, it's gonna be worth it in the end. And, and, and luckily the budgets have kind of grown with the notoriety of, of doing this a few times. So I, I mean that Z I put, that's a lot of me in there, like sweat equity too. (laughs) (laughs) It's like people dress for the job they want car builders build the car for the car they want to build next and yeah I, and i think it, it makes sense if you're if you're starting with no reputation you know sometimes that sweat equity and and in your case it, it absolutely has has paid dividends so tr- trying to charge every hour and, and and with your first build when you've got no no reputation that's going to be a, a little bit trickier maybe not impossible but a little bit trickier all right let's let's move into one of the topics we quite often get asked about and that's fabrication equipment. And what I want to do here is start at a sort of an entry level because you know, I know a, a, there's a lot of enthusiasts out there who are building their, their own project cars. And I mean, I'm not talking at the level that, that you're you're working at. When We're not going to see me here, but we're doing some basic modifications on cars, maybe engine swaps, transmission swaps, suspension, et cetera. And, and there's, there's a point where some level of fabrication skill and equipment really does become essential. So at that point, the enthusiast has the option, do I learn to do this myself or am I going to outwork it? And outworking it can be awkward, it can be expensive, etc. Obviously, there's, there's also an investment in terms of uh, time, money, uh, skills, etc. That that you need to make if you want to be able to do these things yourself. So, yeah, at, at an entry level, what what would you consider the basic requirements for fabrication tools and equipment? It, it's getting easier and easier these days with the advancement of out services. Um, but yeah, there's still definitely a, a basic standard you need to meet. And I'll I'll also say that I, there, I've never once, well, there's one time and we'll get there. Other than that, I've never started with like the Cadillac machine. I've always started from the bottom, figured out. Well, you mentioned your Harbor Freight tube bender. <laughs> so that, that's a perfect example. You don't need a yeah. you know, $1,000 tube bender. You, you're doing it for for a tenth of that and getting getting results. Yeah, it's I, I didn't start on the fourteen dollars or $15,000 Bailey rotary draw setup. I, I worked from that Harbor Freight for a decade and and really had to do it the hard way before I'd earned the right to really advance to that that Bailey unit that's just sweet. I just used it yesterday. Man, I, that thing's still, I love it. Uh, but to start, you need, I mean, it's really hard to do metal fabrication without some form of a welder. Um, MIG is really easy to get into. MIG is kind of where most people start. And, and for good reason, because like that knowledge of knowing how a puddle works and and how how to direct that puddle where you want it using the heat you know to cuz rod follows heat in this case in mig it's putting the rod in there for you but um you know if you want to get a strong joint you need to get that weld equally tied into both sections of that joint and and so starting with a mig and taking out a few variables i mean you're probably going to have two knobs heat and wire speed figure out how to you know, cope tube and, and make tube joints with that before you go to TIG, uh, that'll be really useful. And you can use MIG for basically anything. 
I, I don't MIG very much these days. Occasionally, there'll be some kind of a random project, but for the most part, like the cars I'm building now, a MIG generally won't touch those unless it's like a budgetary thing. Yeah, I, I think in in these days of Instagram accounts like World Porn, you know, the the sort of almost MIG finally got featured on there. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Took me like a decade. You made it. <laughs> never, never mind Seema just getting featured on World Porn. <laughs> yeah, job well done. But uh, and in all seriousness, I think MIG has has almost been seen as an a technology or a technique that that's not up to task for motorsport fabrication, and, and I, I, that, that's not entirely true or fair, is it? No, no. There's the the stigma of it, but if you're not prissy about it, MIG is a totally it's a sound technique. I mean, it's sometimes you'll make a better MIG joint than a TIG joint if it's something way out of place, like uh, for instance, the top halo of a roll cage. If you didn't plan your cage right to drop through the floor and you can't remove the roof. I, back in the day, that's how I used to do it. Nowadays, I know how to plan for that thing, but I'm sure lots of the enthusiasts at home, when you're building your first roll cage, you don't necessarily think about how you're going to weld it out. You're just thinking about how can I get this bent to fit? Um, and in fabrication, it always pays dividends to be a few steps ahead in your head. M- MIG is totally fun. You'll find MIG on world-class race cars of all sorts from, I I, I haven't personally seen a a modern NASCAR. Maybe they're all to take now, but I know back in the day they sure weren't. And rally cars, all kinds of Pike Pikes Peak cars, just all kinds of of MIG applications. And they're not bad. And it's just now I'm so advanced at TIG, I can almost TIG as proficiently as MIG from a time standpoint, uh, grabbing the squirt gun versus grabbing some TIG rod in a uh, there, there's really no out of position stuff that I'm not very comfortable or, or able to find comfort in using the TIG. So I do that because, it, yeah, it's a sexier weld. And in my opinion, it's a stronger weld just because it doesn't heat affect the seam quite like a MIG does where it hardens it, um, which there's some give and take there too. I'm not a, a scientist or anything, but sure. um, uh, people, there is the stigma. I'll just say there is a stigma, but when you're learning, don't be afraid of it. Like that's that's a that's a powerful tool. To to just put that into perspective, and, and I mean, I know for our US or European uh, listeners, this probably is not a, a a form of motorsport that most people will follow. But in New Zealand and Australia, there's the Australian Supercars series, which is a very competitive series, and they they run a control chassis, which is all tube frame. And I remember reading an article, unfortunately I don't remember the name of the team, but they actually did back-to-back tests in terms of the torsional rigidity of the chassis, both MIG welded and TIG welded, and they actually ended up going with MIG because the torsional rigidity difference was minuscule when compared to the time saved. So you know, if, oh, yeah. if teams at that level where the budget within reason is, is just about unlimited are, are going in that direction, you know, it should speak volumes that yes, this is a viable technique uh, for the average home enthusiast who maybe wants to add some tabs to their existing chassis for for mounting a, a catch can or, or whatever that may be. In terms of the the techniques, obviously the, there is a dramatic difference in terms of the, the MIG is feeding the filler wire directly into the weld pool versus with TIG you're generating the weld pool and then manually feeding the filler rod into the weld pool. Is there anything that you learn from becoming proficient with MIG that translates across to TIG or in your opinion are the two techniques just chalk and cheese? 
like say the the ability to read a puddle is is huge and you can learn that from mig as well as tig once you get to tig it's a little more advanced because there's a lot more inputs uh, but with MIG, it's still, you got your wire speed and you got your heat. And then you kind of, I mean, say you're welding a piece of 16 gauge sheet metal to a construction I-beam. You're going to learn really quick work that you need to direct most of your heat on that I-beam and then, and just barely grab that, that piece of sheet metal to fuse them together without just blowing a big hole through it. So that's stuff that sticks with you through all welding processes and then learning, learning like just based off the sound of it okay, do I need more wire speed? Do I, I mean, it's not necessarily the sound with TIG so much, although I use it somewhat to get in a groove with, with my rod ads. Uh, but it's, it's, they're very comparable. I, you, you need both. You, you really should do both. And so you need to learn MIG. MIG probably makes more sense to learn first because it's a lot less cost of entry versus starting with like a, a nice high grade TIG machine. Um, which I don't really have the highest grade, I would say, but I also don't have the lowest grade. It's it it does a lot of stuff for you once you get to that inverted technology yeah. um, with pulse and and all that type of stuff involved. Yeah, okay. Uh, just just to maybe put some broad numbers uh, around that for our listeners, you know, an, an entry level MIG machine that you would think is suitable for motorsport applications and a comparable sort of maybe not the highest level TIG but an inverter modern inverter TIG machine that's ACDC capable what are we sort of talking cost wise the the cost to entry for TIG has actually come down a bit there's brand you know there's some uh, I've seen lots of uh, fabricators I follow using the Everlast brand they seem to be having good luck with it and the the Fronius I think um, I've I've got an ESOB and it, I bought it at SEMA on some SEMA crazy deal and it's a 280 amp ESOB. It's it's their only one where you actually have full control over all the knobs because the auto stuff is really cool when you're learning, but you'll outgrow that quickly and you want to have more precise control over all the inputs. But I'm working my way up to like a, a Miller uh, Dynasty. <laughs> I think every fabricator is, um, but I. It's not the machine. It's kind of like this: the shop doesn't make the builder. The machine doesn't make the welder. Yeah. The knowledge of how to utilize it to its fullest makes the welder. I, I feel like the only, I, I could never be the best welder in the world and and use this machine to its full capabilities. Uh, but some of my earlier stuff, my on that that one sixty ACDC, uh, you can you can outgrow that at, at a point, and and that's what I did. I hit that point and. I'm building cars for a high level at SEMA and, and things need to not only be structural, but look a certain way. Um, and it's, and then you get into the, the purging and the, the cups and the gas lenses and, and, you know, the nerdy side of welding that, that leads to all these, you know, cool Instagram posts and, and things that people go nuts over. Absolutely. I, I think that the relevant point there, just to expand on it is, you know, you, you, you start your journey of learning to TIG weld and, and you know, having the best machine in the world is is not going to necessarily get you featured on on weld porn. It's again just comes back to perfecting your art, the time on the torch, uh, and you know a, a good run of the mill, middle of the road sort of TIG machine is probably going to to be more than adequate, particularly as you're getting started. Just to again, can, can we put a dollar number around those just broadly, or you sort of don't have those in mind? It's been so long since I've made one of those purchases, but I want to say I, I have a Lincoln 180 amp MIG welder, um, obviously gas, not flux core. 
Uh, and that's a pretty good machine for doing. I mean, I welded all those truck bumpers and roll cages and, and, uh, stuff that like the truck bumper was tested. Yeah. <laughs> Ran into somebody like 30 miles an hour and didn't budge probably like 1800 to 2000, I would say maybe lower nowadays. Cause that, that was a long time ago. I don't know how technology has gone, but then a, a mid grade TIG machine like mine, I, I want to say it was somewhere in the five to $6,000 range for a 280 amp. Um, versus like if you step up, cause I've been looking, uh, if you step up to like a, a dynasty in the same amperage, it's more like 12 to 15 if memory serves with all the bells and whistles and stuff. So you just kind of got to step your way up You start, find a way to make money with that $2,000 machine and then, or, or make parts if you're not trying to do this as a business, which, you know, might be smart. Uh, and then work your way up. And, and as the, as you learn how to utilize what you've got, uh, then you can start to outgrow it. But most people don't utilize what they really have. Definitely. Uh, now, another element with those new to TIG welding is the term uh, ACDC. And, and when you're shopping for a TIG, it, it definitely pays to understand what that means and what the machine's capabilities are. So can you talk to us about the different types of TIG DC versus ACDC and why you choose one over the other? Yeah, I, with today's technology, I'm pretty sure that you can all get an entry-level TIG that's inverted, and I would highly recommend it because... Learning with the ACDC is a little bit more tricky because what that is, is is you've got a strict welding uh, process for both aluminum and um, ferrous metals. And so you've got to change your tungsten. So you, I, I always, I love the radioactive red tungstens. I'll use those till the day they kill me. Um, but the that's all I use for anything now with my inverted machine, titanium, aluminum. It's always a 330 seconds thoriated. Uh, but with AC, you had to have the green, and it's been so long, I don't even recall what the material is, but you had to have the green tungsten. You had to, I mean, you had to, it's just a totally separate process. And that's when you get that loud, the machine's just going crazy when you're welding it. And and the whole thing about TIG is it's such a nice, relaxed, uh, almost therapeutic process when you're just doing steel or stainless or titanium. And you can just really get in the groove and you lose yourself and it's like, by the time you're done welding, you're like, man, I'm refreshed. That was nice. Yeah. Um, unless you're welding a roll cage in place and it's a really complicated one, then you're like throwing your TIG and you dropped it and you broke a freaking $50 cup and you're just cussing. But yeah, a- ACDC machines, it's a, it's a separate, it's a separate way. Cause you need a whole lot more energy to, to melt and weld aluminum versus uh, steel. But the, the new machines, I'm not like, say I'm no scientist on the subject. I just know that it was different. And nowadays you don't have to go through those same hoops and, and hassles to get the, the results. It, it's a lot easier to weld uh, aluminum on an inverted TIG. Right, let, let's dive a, a little bit into the topic of, of tungstens. And you know, we're, we're probably getting a, a little bit nerdy on, on this. That's that's just fine. Uh, you mentioned the, the red tungsten. So for those who aren't aware, you buy a pack of tungstens and they're, they're color-coded and the, the red is the thoriated tungsten. And in modern days, uh, there's been sort of a bit of a backlash against these because they are, to a degree, radioactive. radioactive. To a degree. Yeah. So I, I've, I've seen reports of studies now showing that the, the radioactive nature of them, you just about 
be impossible to actually cause yourself some some health issues with them. There there are some concerns around you know when when you're actually sharpening the tungsten though, if you're stupid enough to to get in there and sort of snort up the the debris, the grinding dust that's coming off it. Well, yes, you you probably could get yourself into some trouble. But I mean, uh, some some basic precautions generally, you know. I know there's a lot of TIG welders, they they will live and die by the red thoriated tungsten. So then these days we have multi-mix, which uh, depending I think where you in the world you are, I think it's pink, pur- purple, maybe purple. purple yeah, pink. I think we get pink, yeah. but I have heard reports of different colours for the same multi-mix, which uh, is, is, you know, a... a a design tungsten that supposedly will work on on any material, uh, ferrous or non-ferrous. Mm-hmm. There are still, and it sounds like you're in, in that sort of um, list of, of welders, though, who the thoriated is still the, the go-to for certain materials over multi-mix. For me, it's thoriated. I've tried the multi-mix. Yeah, I, I can't say if it's a good brand or a bad brand, but the ones I tried, just they they lose their tip almost immediately and it's just like man this is like a vegan hamburger versus the real deal like get, just give me the just give me the real deal um and and then they have the the lanthanated and serrated i believe they're called the gold and the gray or silver and those are supposed to be the kind of the new red and green um and, and they just didn't really a you have to remember which one you're using for which process and they're kind of similar colors like Green and red were easy. Uh, and then they had blue. I want to say it was like blue for stainless or something. But if you want to just forget all that, be careful grinding them, but use the red ones. Uh, and that's that's kind of what I tell everybody starting out because I get that question quite often. Like, hey, what do I use? I'm welding chromoly. What what filler rod? And, you know, it's like, guys, if you take these like titanium and inconoil and like these, these exotic or, or more exotic materials, people – People, myself included, when I was starting out, really throw them up on this pedestal and are like, man, you got to really be serious to do this stuff. And, and honestly, titanium welds easy. It's a little stick. The puddle's a little stickier than stainless, but it welds just as easy as stainless. You just have to mind your, your cup angles a little bit more in your back purge because you can roach it a little bit quicker if you let that oxygen hit it. But that's the same for any kind of reactive metal. So it's just learning learning good techniques early. Um, before you step up to those is helpful because you won't have to bend so many pieces. But welding's a simple process and it's fun because you can chase that perfection forever and never find it. So it's always yeah. It's always every time I weld is is a new new experience of the same thing. It's just like say it's a therapeutic experience. Uh, while while we're sort of netting out a little bit about the um, tungstens, yeah, you know, that, that goes hand in hand with that is we just sort of touched on sharpening the tungsten, and, and that that's really important. Getting the tungsten sharpened in the in the correct orientation, so in line mm-hmm. with the tungsten. Also, yep. you know, the the angle that you've sharpened the tungsten to, whether you're taking the very tip off or, or leaving that. So, can you give us a little bit of feedback on what, what what's involved here? How critical? Is this or is this another area where the specific angle of, of sharpening the tungsten is probably less important than the operator's uh, skill on the torch? Yeah, they they make all kinds of cool gadgets now for doing it, but I've always had a dedicated, uh, it's a one inch by 30 belt sander um, and you want to use a more fine grid is better, um, but I've used, there's a particular pack of belts I, I buy and it comes with some coarse and some some very fine. And so once the fine ones run out, I use the coarse ones and it's fine. But 
yeah, you want to you want to sharpen it against the grain. My preferred method is to chuck it in a, a drill and then have that belt sander rotating. And then off the top, I can kind of control the drill going in to get a, a nice even taper. Um, but I'll kind of I'll go from the side uh, the way you're not supposed to sharpen it. Just kind of take take any you know debris or anything off really quick. And then I hit everything in grain, tap the tip just to make sure there's no contaminants. And then I put a nice taper on it and tapers varies. Uh, the, the finer and longer the point, uh, the more precise your, your puddle's going to be for a range of time. Because also like, like with a really sharp knife, it'll dull quicker too, the more times you strike that arc. Uh, and so it's kind of a, a mix there. Aluminum isn't necessarily as picky with the puddle, how that works versus doing like a titanium or something where you really want it. You want that super fine puddle so that you can really control the way it's fusing together and the way it looks. Um, whereas like aluminum, you want to weld aluminum right on the verge of like chaos. You want that hot and then you want to move quick. Uh, and, but the, the tungsten angle I found is for me anyways, it's a lot less critical and, and I'll, I'm I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not like a, I tapped it. It's contaminated stop kind of guy. Most of the time, unless I'm doing something really high dollar, like a titanium side pipe on the beige Corvette I built. Uh, it's like, okay, if I screw that up, it's visual and I'm going to like waste $800 in material or something. But I always keep like a little practice pad next to me of, of the material I'm welding. And if I tapped it, I'll just strike an arc there and let it kind of clean itself out and then come back to the component. But um, you can, you can weld uh, a whole lot of stuff with a really not great tip on your tungsten um, dudes that are absolute technicians, like say Mark Winchester with aluminum. Um, those guys I'm sure always have a nice tungsten and they don't, they don't tap their tungsten into anything because they're too professional for that. But <laughs> I mean, you say professional, but I mean, the best laden tent still goes out the window some, from time to time, particularly if you're sort yeah. of curled up around a cage or in some super awkward position. I mean, uh, sometimes you, know, you you will contact the tungsten to the workpiece, correct? Yeah, it's, it's unavoidable, just like breaking your nice Pyrex cups. It's just going to happen. So in that case, uh, particularly when you're learning and this is going to be happening more often, is it worth having sort of a, a pack of, of pre-sharpened tungstens maybe sitting in your, your fabrication apron or your overall so it's it's quick and easy to change rather than having to actually get out of the, the position you're in and, and go back to the workbench and actually sharpen that tungsten again? Yeah, I uh, I I used to keep probably two packs sharpened at all times. Uh, uh, a friend Scott uh, made me this cool little tungsten holder thing, and I still use it. But I'd I'd sharpen like twenty five, pack them in this thing, and then once I that thing was empty, it's like okay, I need to stop and and do another sharpening session. But nowadays, it's it's rare to really do a bad one. Every I mean, out of position, everybody's uh, done it, but. Uh, I probably sharpen a tungsten five, six times a week, something like that, okay. maybe once a day. Uh, just depends kind of also if I'm tacking, if I'm going to do a thousand tack welds on something, that's going to that's gonna take your point off, you know, in a hurry. Um, so then I'll tack it all with a really bad one and then I'll go through, sharpen it, come through and lay down the beads. 
So is it just just based on what you said there? Is it the initial uh, arc strike that tends to sort of dull the tip of the tungsten, as opposed to striking the arc and then you know doing a a meter long weld, for example? Is it just the the continual striking of the arc for tack welding? For me, that seems to be what it is. Like, say, I'm not I'm not the the welding instructor guy. I'm not the the textbook guy. I I'm self taught. And I know what works well for me, and that's what I do and tend to promote other people doing. Because, like, say, it's worked for me for, gosh, coming on probably fifteen years of TIG welding. Yeah, I and mean, I think that that's a, a a continual theme that I hear from those that I talk to who are professional fabricators. Is, is yeah, there's the the textbook way of doing this, but everyone has sort of developed their own sort of take on that textbook method. And I think that's really important to to understand is, you know, you're going to to find your own way in this industry and, and find out what works for you. And you know, within reason, that that's, that's absolutely fine. Now, a, a couple of other things that have been mentioned, I just want to sort of come back to here. When we were talking about the, the MIG versus the TIG, the, there's some areas where really MIG is a complete no-no, and it's probably not a material that the the average sort of enthusiast just getting started out started out would dive into, but but chromoly that that's a a, a pretty special mm-hmm. case uh, around the fabrication process. Can you talk to us about some of the intricacies of chromoly and welding it? Yeah, it's it's just such a hard material as it is, um, and so brittle that when you mig, you've got a much it's it's a the the way that the heat and the rod interacts, it's a lot less malleable versus like a TIG weld with. It's chromoly, so 70S2 uh, filler rod. Um, you, 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 you really should, I mean, at the high ends of things, like these people that build these crazy million-dollar trophy trucks and stuff, like they're, they're even like stress peening all their chromoly stuff to relieve some of that stress from the shrinkage from weld. Um, that's a little bit above my pay grade. Um, but when I, when I weld chromoly, it's strictly TIG, uh, like say ER70S2 filler, the way you want to do it is you uh, you want to get as little heat in the part as you can while still getting that penetration that you need for the structure. Um, whereas like MIG welding, you're just throwing all the heat at it and all the rod. Um, whereas TIG, you can kind of control that. And then the rod you're filling, it, it just ends up being a more, I, I don't want to say given the weld, but it's kind of like why they TIG weld super high-end chassis is, is when that joint, that joint and the weld, you want that to distort when it sees lots of pressure, but you don't want it to just crack right next to the weld because the, the heat kind of pre-messed up that weld, the, the heat zone. I think like the key here is that the amount of control you've got over the heat being input into the material with with the TIG processes is far superior, a lot finer control than what you can ever get with MIG. And with that chromoly material, if you if you do a bad job of the weld, if you're putting too much heat into it, if you tried MIG welding it, you, you'll have a, probably a, a nice strong weld. But what's going to happen is if you have a big crash with that particular roll cage, it's it's got a brittle area, the heat affected zone either side of the weld, and and likely you're going to find that the weld will be just fine, and the the tube's going to break just beside the weld. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and, and I guess one of the other big nice things about TIG welding, uh, is the control over the gas flow. So your pre-flow and your post-flow and then usage of different cups to keep that weld protected from oxygen, why it's, you know, in this high heat stage, um, so that it can kind of cool down before it's introduced to the oxygen, maybe below the level where it starts creating these kind of stressed, 
um, different metallurgical things that cause that big crack right next to the weld. Cause like, like you say, it's never right through the weld where it breaks. It's right next to the weld where it's been affected from that heat. So with TIG, you can, you can control your travel. So, Hey, I'm going to travel an inch and then I'm going to throw 35 CFH argon at this thing for eight seconds before I move my cup. And that's kind of, um, I get questions from non-welders all the time. Like, Hey, you finished welding 10 seconds ago. Why, why do you sit there? It's like, well, I'm just controlling, you know, when the the heated metal meets the oxygen. Um, and by doing that, you can, you can amplify the strength of your welds pretty considerably because you're not overheating and then just introducing it to oxygen because oxygen's the killer of all welds. That's why if you forget to turn your gas on, you get a big blow up pop in your face. Yeah, I think uh, that that's a mistake everyone's gonna gonna make once in a while, and you you quickly learn what that uh, what that gas is there for. So, you know, talk, talking a little bit more about the the gas, and this becomes more of a, a concern. Obviously, the more reactive the material is, and, and in fact, we've used that term reactive material a, a few times. So, can you just fill us in? What what are we talking about with a reactive material, and what are these reactive materials? Yes, some of the when you say reactive, it's the way it reacts to oxygen above, say, a certain temperature range. Like, I want to say titanium is. Now, this could be totally wrong because I didn't look any of this up, but I want to say it's somewhere around 800 degrees Fahrenheit or something. So if you go welding, uh, you know, at a, a couple thousand degrees Fahrenheit, and then you just instantly let the oxygen hit that way, it's that temperature, uh, it's going to crystallize the structure of that that metal um, versus keeping kind of things in line. And, and so it's just going to be super brittle right off the bat. Like you can easily feel it if you, if you, if you do that, if you test that, if you forgot to turn your gas on, you you weld titanium for two seconds while there's still some gas on the line, and then you hit that little spot, uh, you, you can just pop that tab off and you'll just watch it just whoop, you know, snap off there, or it'll even do it on its own. You don't even have to pop it sometimes because it got so so brittle so fast or so crystallized. And and that's kind of what it works. So like stainless, anything with certain alloys in it. Um, added to the steel is going to be reactive because those are what react. Um, it's really hard to mess up plain old mild steel. Um, you can pretty much weld that any way you like, and it's not going to be too messed up one way or the other. It won't be as pretty if you don't have nice, you know, post flows and things like that working for you in a big cup or or the biggest cup you can get. Um, but uh, yeah, like titanium, Inconel, stainless, um, those are three big ones that you kind of interact with as a fabricator. Um, not in Canel so much for what I'm doing, although I've played with it. Um, that's more like high level race stuff because that's quite expensive just for the raw inputs on that, let alone how you fabricate it. Um, but 321 stainless, 304 stainless, um, all those are great practicing agents to work your way up to the exotic stuff that are all reactive. So, you, you know, if you, if you aren't shooting your cup, at the right direction at the thing and you move too fast, you'll get a spot and it, it looks all sugared out. And that's kind of how, you know, like, Oh man, I messed that part up. Now that sort of a mistake is, is a fairly obvious one that you're not going to be able to overlook in terms of a, a lack of, of shielding gas. But I mean, mm-hmm. with those more reactive materials, particularly stainless uh, and, and titanium, titanium in particular, you see that the, the discoloration, the sort of the bluing and the purpling uh, colors that, mm-hmm. you know, 
often the, these parts are produced specifically with that discoloration because it's a, an aesthetic look that some people are going for. But that, that's actually indicating that reaction with atmospheric air with the, the heated titanium, isn't it? It's, it's actually a clue that you've got a lack of shielding gas there. Yeah, it's you, you can read it just like a book and, and anything above like a, a very light bronze is is you kind of mess that up a little bit. You shouldn't be seeing on titanium, on stainless, you'll see little bits of purple and pink and gold and, and really you're okay. Um, but when you get into titanium, you don't want to be seeing anything above that, that bronze color. Um, and, and the cleaner, the more like the parent material, the better. Um, it, should, it should come out as a nice, shiny, uniform surface if you did it right. And if you didn't, then it just comes down to gas flow because something touched something above the heat threshold before you could slow down that transfer from oxygen to that inert environment. Now, this brings us sort of into a conversation around protecting the, the rest of the world. Obviously, we've got our gas flow through the torch. and We'll talk a little bit more about, about cups or gas lenses, that, that sort of element in, in a moment. But the other part when you're welding just about anything is there's going to be the backside of the weld. And of course, that's not protected by the inert gas flow, the shielding gas flow from from your torch. So this is where when we're fabricating things like uh, stainless exhaust headers or exhaust systems, any tubing essentially made out of these reactive materials, we, we have to look at also adding purge welding into our process. So can you talk to us for a start, what, what is purge welding and, and how does that that work out. Yeah, so purge welding, um, and that was kind of one of the dark arts as I was kind of self-teaching, um, is the local welding store can't tell you anything about purge welding, more than likely, or at least mine didn't. And this was really before the social media craze um, where, I mean, you could just like, I just gave a tip the other day um, that would have helped me a ton if I was learning just, here's the process, here's the base process. It's not magic. It's really simple, actually. Um, and what you're doing is you're creating an inert environment or an oxygen-free environment on the inside of a, something where you can't shield the backside organically, like have it set up against a, a heat sink that's airtight or something like that. You can get away with that a little bit on like flat plate, but like tubing, you need to cap both ends. You need to have it hooked up to an argon source and you need to be flowing the argon in there at a, a rate that displaces the oxygen. Um, so that you can weld on the outside and have the inside also free of oxygen. And it, it also helps a little bit in the, having that, that light pressure inside will kind of form your bead into the metal from the backside too, so that you get a slicker inner portion of the tube. Um, it'll, if you do it all right, it'll be colorless and it'll look like you welded it from the inside. And that's kind of the cool part is you know that's a super strong weld because not only did you weld the the outside, but the inside, it didn't weld itself, but it kind of welded itself. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of strength, you, you, you mentioned this gives a stronger weld. If, if anyone's sort of seen the results of not purging, you know, the outside of the, the tube, let, let's say we're talking about an exhaust system just for an example, you can get a, a lovely looking weld on the outside and then if you actually cut that in half and looked at the inside, it, it's all sugary and shitty looking. And, and that would be the source of potential cracking starting. Am, am I right there? Yep. Every time you weld, that weld has a shelf life, be it it's never going to fail for 200 years or it's going to fail first time you run some heat through that thing, let it cool and, and then try to run some heat back through it. Exhausts are particularly a harsh environment for a weld because you got heat and you got vibration. And those are the two things that can, you know, 
deteriorate a weld. Um, so when you don't purge the inside, you get that crystallizing of the weld. Um, and that crystallizing is, is contaminants. It's oxygen contaminants. And it's, it's literally trying to break your weld as you're welding it. So um, if you don't back purge, yeah, it, it may look the exact same on the outside. Um, it seldom does because there's some benefits of purging there where you're, it's going to have better effect of pulling heat out of that weld as you're, as you're doing it. Cause you're running a, a colder gas through the, the inside, but um, it, it's just, you're shortening your shelf life. Some people get away with it. I've seen people, uh, I mean, people have MIG welded exhaust and they've lasted a long time stainless exhaust with steel MIG welds. And I, I can't explain how, but for every role, there's an exception. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a welder crying in a corner somewhere <laughs> every time you'd touch one of those with a MIG welder, but it's, in terms of the the materials required to do it, obviously you're going to need the argon supply, which you've mentioned, which also it kind of sounds like a, a pretty wasteful process, and by definition it, it has to be. You know, what sort of you know life are you getting out of a, a bottle of, of argon when you're you're back purging? How how much are you wasting? How much does this sort of add to the cost of your consumables for a start? Mm-hmm. If, if you think about it say you're welding stainless and and I will let's just say generally have a 16 cup on there just a general purpose cup and I'm welding at 25 to 35 CFH depending on how bad I don't want to screw this material up you're always going to be purging it I start at 15 or 20 and and let it just kind of really push that oxygen out you need to wait depending on the part size and where the weld's indexed, uh, because argon is heavier than oxygen. So if you can have your purged part at the lowest point where, you know, the oxygen can be at the top of the tube, that doesn't matter, but the argon's going to naturally from gravity want to sit at the bottom. Um, It's less time, but just, you know, I, that's when I'll check Instagram or something. It's like, oh, I'm going to let this purge out for a minute here before I get going. Um, And then, you know, throw the phone away because it fr- it messes with your your weld lens like crazy. Um, but I'm I'm running 15 or 20 through there, and then as soon as I feel like it's it's probably good, I'll kick it down to five to ten, depending on again how bad I don't want to mess this up. If it's something that could live with a a poor purge, then I won't just piss that gas away as quick as um, if it's like, hey, this is a big big long piece of titanium, I. I really don't want this messed up because um, there's been plenty of times where I've pulled the purge caps at the end and went, oh, shit, I forgot to turn it on. Or, you know, <laughs> some, yeah, it's so there's always always those things. But, um, yeah, it's you can have the simplest. I mean, I started with tinfoil, rubber bands, uh, yellow body men's tape, and just a gas line coming off of a dual regulator on one bottle. And nowadays I've got two bottles with their own regulators and and all one's feeding the welder and one's feeding the purge um and there's even like liquid or i tried a liquid argon setup and that would have been awesome except that it purges itself off quicker than a one-man shop unless you're doing manufacturing can really utilize it all but at that rate you could kind of purge you could purge all the gas you want but that purge is constantly running why that that part is on your welding table and you're welding it so why you're while you're sitting after the weld and you're post flowing, that thing's still flowing. If it's sitting on your bench and you're not doing anything or somebody calls you, that thing's still flowing. So even though it's at a lower CFH. You're still using up gas. Yeah, you're using up gas in this day and age more than 
uh, ever, as long as I can remember, gas is really expensive. So you kind of think about it, but at the same time, uh, it's a quality part. It's a quality service. It's kind of cost of doing business, basically. Yeah. Yeah. If you're purge welding, you should be charging a different rate per hour for that weld than you would be if you're just traditional TIG welding without a purge because the materials involved are, are substantially more. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, you mentioned uh, capping the the part that you're welding with the, the likes of tinfoil as a, a or aluminium foil, I guess, as a, a cheap alternative. Uh, you know, there are specific silicon plugs made for purging as well. So at the entry level, absolutely not necessary. I can imagine there's a cost that goes along with these silicon pur- purging plugs. It's not necessary, but they're really nice. The TIG Aesthetic uh, silicone caps, I got two sets. Um, Brad that produces those, good good, good guy, uh, very knowledgeable follow on Instagram too. Um, but th- those are really sweet. Um, the only thing you need to remember is that it's silicone, so it's heat resistant, but you can Icarus that thing real quick if you're going to weld that seam really close to it. So what I like to do is I'll use those to weld all the seams in the middle and leave one seam, like say I'm doing a pie cut 90. I'll leave that last seam. I won't weld that. It'll just be tacked where the plug is. And then I'll weld that seam after I've welded that part to the assembly um, to, to better spread that heat out through the part. And you'll find that that also helps you with the coloration of your welds without up in the argon post flow or flow. Um, because the more one thing to think about is as you're welding that material, you're welding is sucking the heat out of that, that weld puddle. And based on what material you're doing, it could be at a faster or slower rate, but any, at any rate, the more area you've got to spread that out over, um, the more efficient it's going to be at sucking that extra heat out so that you don't have to post flow for 10 seconds. Maybe you can get away with six seconds. Um, because it's, it's just a matter of getting that, that temp down below the threshold before the the argon shuts off. Okay. Now, along the same lines, just essentially protecting the the material that that we're welding, and we're still on this reactive material sort of uh, discussion. You know, we hear about uh, gas lenses, gas cups. That that term's thrown around, and and again, if you've sort of followed any of the the welding Instagram accounts, you, you'll see these in action. So, what is this? How does it differ from the the normal sort of pink? cup uh, sorry, uh, lens or whatever you'd like to call it that, that we, we end up with when we purchase a, a TIG machine off the shelf. You know, what, what are these for? Yeah, it's, it's all about the diffusion of the gas or, or trying to control. I mean, that argon's coming out at a set rate. You, if it's in too narrow of a path and it's flown at too fast of a rate, it's just going to you know, blow off that weld you know, as you've passed over that area. And it's not going to protect it from the oxygen long enough. So what you want to do is you you want to methodically slow that gas down and disperse it in a in a wider area to cover that weld after you've already passed that area. So one way to look at it is is you've you've got two things: you've got uh, velocity and you've got size in the cups. And so a smaller cup is going to have a higher velocity of the gas coming out, and and a bigger cup is going to have less velocity. Um, but it's going to have a wider span of where that gas is concentrated. And so like, if you're going to, one place where you find this out as a welder is say, if you're going to weld a titanium inch and three quarter radiator hose, you're going to want to stick with a smaller cup because you like a, say a 12 to a 16, 
because that that velocity you need that to reach and kind of wrap because it's a, not a flat surface. Um, whereas if you're doing like two a boat weld on two pieces of metal or you're doing like four or five inch intake, um, it's a it's a larger flat flatter less radius area. You can get away with that twenty cup that's just not shooting it out at a super high rate, but it's just porking it and letting it sit over that, that area. Um, so that's, that's, uh, an example where I found out was I was doing the titanium radiator hose on that in Xanity Z. And I was like, what in the hell is going on? Why, you know, the bigger the cup, the better, uh, not necessarily, uh, it's every cup has its, its job. And, and like, say for an aluminum where it's not necessarily as important post flow and, and, you know, protecting that weld, you kind of just need to protect it where you're at welding it. Um, you can, I still use a number seven pink cup, um, or one of Mike Ferrex Pyrex ones, if you want to really see the, the weld puddle from a weird angle or something like that. But it's every, every cup has its job. You should have all the way from a number seven up to, uh, say a 20. Um, and the, and the smaller cups, like the, uh, my go-to cup is an Empiric 12. That's just, I'll weld anything with that. It says not to, but I'll even weld aluminum with that when I need a little more rod stick out. It's a good velocity versus size. Um, so you can really throw your tungsten out. Like uh, I've probably, there's been times when I probably stuck that thing out two and a half inches and just crank the CFH up to 60 as high as the welder ago or something. And then had a lot of pre-flow to make sure it was flooded out down there. But it's like, that's the only way I can weld that joint. It's like down in some weird, super steep angle off. I mean, that's, you just got to do what you got to do. But if you didn't have that ability with a gas lens and then a specialty cup that also had a diffused in it before you couldn't, you couldn't weld that part. It was physically impossible to get a tungsten stuck out far enough because the, the argon isn't sticking in that path or, um, you know, with the, with the, the gas lens was a game changer when I found out about that. Cause my machine didn't come with them. And I'd heard about them, but I didn't necessarily know how they worked. But that's like your first line of defense. So you want a gas lens for anything. You're using the number seven pink on aluminum, like literally everything, because that's just going to slow. The, it's going to kind of disperse that gas around. Um, so you're not just like blowing it at this weld because you can throw way too much uh, velocity at a weld. And it's it's almost like not having the gas at all because it just bounces off before, you know, that puddle's molten hot right there and the oxygen can hit it just because it's there's weird velocities and everything with all this purging and and torch angles and stuff like that and you find weird ones where like inside of a purge this weird bend in the way that your purge line came in and like blew the 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 purge off and sucked air through a pie cut i mean just crazy things that'll rack your brain but Overall, just remember that there's a cup for every job and, and smaller isn't necessarily always worse. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think without going too deep as well, that term you mentioned there, the, the tungsten stick out. I mean, most people could probably understand what that is. You know, that the, there's levels to this as well. As you mentioned, sometimes you, you're going to get yourself into an awkward situation where you have to run a lot of stick out physically to get access to the area you want to weld and you know that plays into your your gas flow your your cup size etc i mean for more usual applications of a gas lens where you don't need to run a, a crazy amount of stick out am, am i right in in my understanding that uh, a lot of these the diffusion the diffusion of the gas is so much better than than your 
normal uh, pink cup that you can actually get away with a, a reduction in gas flow as well. Obviously, the, the size of the cup comes into this as well. Yeah, I'd, I've, I've kind of uh, played with it that way too. And, and uh, you could get down to 20, 2015 to 20 CFH if you have enough pre-flow to make sure that, you know, because you, you lose that velocity as you turn down the CFH, but you would just want to make sure that there's no oxygen down where your arc's going to strike on that tip. So um, especially if you don't have, I mean, if the tip's sticking out a half an inch and you got a size 12 or, or bigger cup or whatever, you can pretty much do no wrong. Like it, CFH wise, you could probably really pump that down if you wanted to. But as you come down closer with that bigger cup, it gets harder to see your arc and, and be able to take those, those physical inputs of what's happening and, and change your, your speed of feed or where you're putting your rod in. Um, so it, I found it's advantageous to have that stick out and just bump up the argon for me personally. I mean, I got glasses. It's, I'm not, uh, not the best uh, seer out there, but I mean, you get to a, a header flange. that's a really a steep inlet. Um, you you'll use every bit of that two to two and a half inch stick out in some situations. And just having the ability to do that is super, super nice. Cause I didn't have that back when I was just using a pink number seven with uh, no gas lens for everything. Cause I didn't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these days at least that knowledge is, is a little bit uh, sort of more widespread as well. Now I, w- I want to move on real briefly and talk about uh, aluminium uh, alloy material that uh, a lot of welders who are new to TIG welding do tend to struggle with and, and yeah, I'm just wondering if you could give us any any tips on on why people struggle uh, welding aluminium and and what your sort of technique is around that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it is intimidating at first because it's it's loud and uh, it's hot and it burns it seems you know, it seems like it's more of an out of control process, even though it's the same exact process. But I've I've always found since I learned that the more you can add heat sinks to things, the better off you are. Because that aluminum will just pull that heat super fast. But if it's got nowhere to pull it to, it'll heat up itself. And then, you know, you might be throwing 50 amps into a, a sheet metal part, but it, it'll start acting more like you're throwing 100 amps at it because the part itself has gotten so hot so fast and as a beginner, you don't really know that, oh, at this point we need to stop because the aluminum's cooking itself and we need to let that cool back down to a reasonable temperature before we keep welding. One way to avoid having to stop and wait um, is to, if it's a sheet metal part, you can go down to the local machine shop and buy a, some kind of a, an end dropout of a really nice thick aluminum or a copper if you can find it and clamp that to the workpiece and let that take some of that heat for you. And you'll find that then you don't have to, it's not pulling, you know, it stays more of a consistent temperature as you're welding it versus it starts really cold and gets really hot. And so now I don't have the foot pedal control to back out anymore. Um, and really you need to stop and turn, turn your amps way down or just let the part cool down. Okay. A c- couple of things in there. So the, Aluminium, aluminum, as uh, as the Americans like to to call it. I like the way you say it better. Ah, <laughs> yeah, tomato, tomato. It is what it is. We're we're talking the same thing here, but it's a very conductive material in terms of the the way the heat's introduced. So you know, you, you've talked about that in terms of using some heat sinks there to not 
overheat the material. You mentioned foot pedal there. So we've got a couple of ways we can control the amount of heat we're actually introducing into the weld uh, with the, the TIG torch. Uh, you can physically set an amperage on the, on the machine and it is what it is or alternatively you can use a foot pedal and set basically up to a maximum and then by how far you push the foot pedal down that will introduce more or, or less less amps. So you know, in terms of the material, I, my understanding again from doing a little bit of this, you need to really hit it with quite a, a lot of amps to start with, build up the heat quickly because it's being drawn away from that weld pull. So get the, the molten weld pull but once that's actually uh, formed, Generally, it doesn't need as much uh, amps to to keep that going. Is that is that correct? That's where the the foot pedal comes into play. You can sort of reduce that that amps on the fly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a third there's a third practice there, and it's probably the one I use the most, and that's preheating. Um, so you, if you take a map gas torch and you go hit your cold aluminum parts, you're going to see this condensation as you heat up the material leave. Um, and, and basically you're just, you're introducing that heat now with a torch outside of your TIG settings so that your TIG settings don't have to vary at such a high rate from super high to low so that you can use that foot pedal more effectively to, to control the input. Um, but so I like to just grab if it's, if it's a really thick aluminum part or it's two sheet metal parts and I know they're dead cold, I'll just hit, hit them with the torch really quick to just bring that base temperature up and get rid of that condensation it's kind of a good visual cue that the parts ready to weld is is once you see that that's kind of pulled back for so, quite some time, then you can strike your arc and and it's going to stay like say within a a twenty amp range or something. Versus, I mean, there's parts I've done where you start at 130 amps, and by the time you get around, because there's just no place for the heat to go, you might have backed down to 60 or something on the machine, and you're still pedaling it. Um, it's just the, the more heat that's in that part, the, the, the trickier it can be to, to kind of fuse that aluminum and not just burn a big hole through it. Um, cause you really, to, to fuse aluminum, right. It's gotta be a hot weld. It's gotta be right on the verge of where that material wants to be. And you got to keep it in that range. And so starting with a, a more level playing field, when you, when you go to do that, it definitely helps. Now, I mean, obviously, you're a professional. I mean, welding alloy for professional. For, uh, <laughs> we'll call you a professional. You're on this. You're on this podcast. You're a professional. <laughs> you, you, you're probably doing this now without even thinking about it in terms of understanding when to back off that foot pedal, when when the material is becoming too hot. But uh, what what should a, a novice be looking for in terms of some some visual cues that hey, we've got the the amps is a little bit high here. We're getting too much heat into the material let's back it off or, or stop and let it cool down a little bit it's a there's a, a really distinctive cue on the front side and the back side and the front side is when you're welding aluminum it'll kind of if you're doing it right the puddle after it's cooled will have kind of a nice shine to it and once that shine starts going away you know that you're putting a little bit too much heat into the part because it's it's it, you can just see it just doesn't look as pretty and you go, hmm, that's funny until you start to understand that, oh, that's too much heat. That's why it doesn't look like Mark Winchester's aluminum weld anymore. It's, it, I, I, I overcooked it. And then you'll turn that piece and look at the backside and you'll go, oh, why is it so much bigger here where it got hot? Because it's just, it's, it's just sucking in that rod and, and the, the parent material around it because it's trying to it's a void you can't fill anymore, basically, with rod, and so you just need to stop. 
Sure. Um, it, and you also don't want to, some people do it, some people don't. You don't want to try to cool these things down super fast either by like douse them in water or anything because that's going to that's gonna make the part very brittle. Um, that that temperature from too hot to to ice cold really quick. You want to kind of let these things in their natural oxygen environment just kind of naturally progress down. It, it makes a better, stronger part. Yep, yep, yeah. Uh, one, one last element I just want to talk about, just to clarify, with the uh, aluminium versus the other materials we've been talking about, we, we consider aluminium essentially to be a, a non-reactive material. So uh, no real need here for big gas lenses, no need to back purge the, the material that we're welding. Like, say, my go-to setup's a number seven pink cup with just, I just leave my traditional gas lens in. You don't necessarily need it, although it's a little helpful. Um, and then purging, I've tried purging aluminum before, just thinking that maybe I'll take advantage of that, that welding itself from the inside thing. And I didn't really find that it, the results were that much better, or if any, than just making sure that you get the right amount of penetration. And if you do it right, the aluminum on the inside kind of fuses itself together a little bit. You'll find that it's not like a big jaggedy thing. Um, and that just comes with technique and practice and, and learning how much you can you know, stay right on that line of putting in just the right amount of heat and filler. Yep. All right, let, let's move on. Uh, we've got a bit deeper into that than than I'd expected, but it's been great information, and, and I'm I'm hopeful that our our listeners will appreciate the the information you've shared there. But uh, I I want to talk about some of the elements, the other elements that go into complete custom car fabrication, lo- like what you're doing, and you know the the last decade, maybe more the last five years, we, we've sort of seen the advent of some of these technologies like uh, 3D modeling, uh, like additive manufacturing 3d printing and 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 the like sort of really come into to the fore and certainly for those with the skill set to utilize those technologies it's making your job easier and you can expand the the range of what you're capable of doing so is this something that you've encompassed with your in your own business oh absolutely it's it's funny that it all started as a very like manual input and nowadays it's just a it's a pivotal part of what i do is is the cad and and the additive manufacturing sides of things um and what that really is is uh i saw magic mike doing it everybody that listens to this is probably familiar but that kind of sparked in me that there's a different way to build a car that's better um and i see that as this technology becomes more i guess ownable as a small business. You know, I have SolidWorks and I have a 3D printer and they're both always running at my business. And if I could learn them, you can learn them because prior to 2019, I'd never touched the stuff, no formal training, didn't hardly even know how to use computers. Um, I still don't know how to use computers, but I can use SolidWorks, not proficiently at all, but good enough to get my stuff done. It's amazing though, I think, I've seen this myself, when there's a a carrot at the end of of learning something new and you can actually see uh, an implementation of the skills that you're you're teaching yourself i don't know for me it just it becomes infinitely easier to to learn that new skill go through the pain and the heartache of, of teaching yourself something new when at the end of it you know that you can then apply this and, and do a whole bunch of really cool stuff that wouldn't have been possible any other way so i think that's you know that's something that's really inspiring i mean the, there's heaps of resources out there we're in the midst of developing our own 3d cad motorsport modeling uh 
course as well, which should be out hopefully before the end of this year, which will be uh, a real big help to those wanting to learn uh, Fusion 360 or, or SolidWorks. And in terms of how you're you're using this in your day to day, can you can you give us a couple of examples, perhaps? Yeah, the the first and the biggest would be send cut send. Um, I'm you know over the the course of over the world, I'm not sure how familiar people are, but in the United States and now I think they serve Canada, and I th- feel like they're going to be expanding because it's just such a good thing. But I can CAD model something here if I want to. I can 3D print out a one to one and just make sure it's exactly what I want. But I can easily upload that on my computer into their software, get an instant quote place an order. And then like a few days later, tangible parts end up in my hand. So uh, like uh, the cantilever suspension setup, I designed for that dart that I'm building. I mean, I start on cardboard, I go to CAD, I send it off to send, cut, send, and then I get all the pieces to actually make like this super precise tab and slot, beautiful component. And it's just so much better than anything I could have cut by hand here and so much easier. And then it's also repeatable. So it's like, hey, if I want to sell one. I, I guess the other element with this is you have to factor in that that there's a cost for your time. So yes, you, you could have generated a template, drawn that out, cut it out on a piece of sheet metal, and your accuracy is not going to be quite there, but it's probably there or thereabouts for a one-off. But I mean, you've got to factor in the, the time spent doing that versus the, the relatively small cost some of these these uh, cutting companies like Sencut send a charging, correct? Oh, absolutely. It's I mean, what what would take me four to five days to manually cut, set up machine portions, do it do it well in a one off, like you say. I, I all I did was hand built one offs up to twenty nineteen ish when I started my my deep dive into all this stuff. And the stuff was okay, but nowadays I can I can have the idea. I don't have to manually lift a finger to find like all the different flaws in it. So say I'm I'm putting in a cantilever suspension. I can go ahead and make an assembly, populate it out with the McMaster car catalog, and and I find all these different loopholes that would have totally bit me if I was doing it manually and I would have had to come up with a workaround versus I can figure it all out on the front end. And this is why CAD is so cool. And and you see pe- people that are true experts like uh, Mike O'Brien utilizing it to build like full vehicles. And I can see why they do it because you find all the problems beforehand. And so you can really have no afterthoughts into a build. Um, and then also it's the, the scalability thing, like as a business too, if I, if I need to build a one-off for uh, one of the cars in my shop, uh, okay, well now that can also be a product following so that you can amplify it. It's like, I made my one-off, but now if I want that to be a product that I can sell, it's already packaged up and ready to sell. And you can even drop ship it right from Send, Cut, Send to other fabricators that are going to weld it together or even end-use customers. So it's like life-changing when I... And and it changes the way you think about construction too when you start doing the CAD stuff. Um, How you think about making things custom and one-off, but also scalable to fit a variety of things because you've got that option yeah, and I think probably a lot of people listening might be thinking, well, I'm probably not going to be designing a custom cantilever suspension system for my project car. And that's fine. That That's sort of taking it to, to that next level. Or uh, 3D Magic Mike, as you mentioned, he works for Roadster Shop. He's using uh, CAD to design a, a full 
uh, chassis and basically articulate all the suspension. You know, that, that's at the extremes. But I mean, at the simple level where I think a lot of people get value out of this is just using some of the sheet metal uh, functionality in either SolidWorks or Fusion 360, just designing the simple little tabs that we're always needing for mounting catch cans, fuel pumps, oh, yeah. the exhaust, hangers, whatever that might be. So simple, so neat. And it's that time saving. But the other element of it is it adds that layer of professionalism uh, versus sort of some make do that, that would probably get the same job done, but but looks just ugly and, and it's just not up to spec. So, yeah, I can't, can't say enough good things about taking the time to to learn those skills. Right, we're, we're getting a little bit long here, but there is one more element that I really wanted to dive into before we, we do finish up, which is the formation of your business, KMC. And you know, we, we have a lot of people listening to this podcast who are either already in business or thinking about starting a business, and this can be quite daunting. So I just wanted to dive really briefly into uh, that element of your journey so far. You know, for a start, you know, you've, you've given us the rundown on, on sort of coming up through your 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 father's uh, body uh, shop, H- at what point did you sort of think, hey, you know what, I, I want to do my own thing, and and how did that sort of pan out for you? Yeah, so I uh, I and I'll say there's never the right time or the best time, and the more you plan it, the less that it'll go to plan in my experience. So uh, I just kind of jumped into it, um, but I had graduated college with uh, the business degree, um, and then I went to work for my dad. Um, as a flat rate auto body tech, why I was just kind of figuring out how I'm going to use that degree. Um, in hindsight, trade school wasn't really thrown at me very much throughout the ranks of of my schooling. I think I would have really thrived in like trade school of some sort, but uh, it's a little late for that now. But I I I'd started my business basically to do a job. Um, my my dad had a, a client that wanted him to build a Datsun Z, not like build it, but restore it a little bit. Um, he, he was at a point in his career where he wasn't really interested in working for other people. He'd done that, paid his dues, and now he's ready to kind of do his own thing. Um, and he's like, well, I, I got a son that is interested in this type of stuff. And he's kind of fresh out of college and looking for stuff to do. And, you know, fast forward uh, a couple handshakes and a contract later and, okay, I'm building this Z and I need to form an LLC and and uh, get my articles of in- organization and all that stuff and did all that. Um, kept my day job for the five, five, maybe six years after I started my business. Um, I started my business unofficially in 2013, had it all organized January 1st, 2014 officially. And then somewhere like September, 2019 is when I made the big leap. Uh, I had a really good career in auto body. It paid way better than being a fabricator and had benefits and had payroll tax built into the paycheck. And I mean, it was cushy now that you look back at it, having started a business, like don't, don't take for granted that day job, but um, it, it can also hold you back. Cause I was always miserable. And I always just felt like it was keeping me from reaching my potential in my business. Um, so I built the Z had great success with that. Like we talked about, had some, had another a 64 Corvette job offered to me that was, a little better paying yet, a little bit bigger budget. Built that one in way too tight of a time frame, um, just to kind of. I won that that Young Guns award, and then I wanted to kind of quickly prove that this is not a fluke. I'm, I'm I want to be serious in this industry. Um, I'm not just a kid that needs the training wheels. 
Uh, so I built another one for SEMA 2019, barely finished. It literally fired Thursday night of SEMA. That was the first fire. Its first test miles wow. were Las Vegas Boulevard, unfortunately. Uh, it, it did good, but I probably lost five years of my life in that experience, uh, just trying to chase down issues. But at that point, two months prior to that SEMA 2019, it was either keep the day job or don't make SEMA just because there was not enough hours in the day to finish that car, even to a SEMA level, uh, untested, but mostly complete. And so I, my, I didn't even plan it. Uh, I went into work that morning, having no idea. And then talked to my dad at lunch and he said, uh, I think it's probably time that you, you quit. And I went, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hadn't really, I wasn't, I probably would have never actually quit that job just because of the financial security and the, it's hard to give that up to the unknown, but um, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I mean, I think your your situation's obviously a little bit more unique working under your, your father's business, but I mean, th- there is an element of, of weighing this up, you know, starting a side hustle, you know, letting it have some legs and see where it goes to before, you know, jumping ship and, and maybe going away from a, a, a career that, that's working quite well for you into something that may not work. So, you know, that, that's viable regardless who you're working for. I mean, it's going to require some hustle, some late nights and, and maybe some lost weekends. But if you want something bad enough, you're, you're going to find a way. One of the the things that always crops up for anyone starting out in business, particularly in the automotive field, is as for yourself. You know, obviously, you started this with a passion for custom car building and and fabrication. When you got involved, uh, I can only assume that you found that there was another element of the actual business side of things: the the admin, the invoicing, quoting, talking to customers, dealing with suppliers. Uh, that that may have potentially come as a surprise. Maybe your your business sort of background helped there, but you know, was that a problem? And can you give us an idea, even today, maybe how you split your time between actually on the tools? fabricating and the other elements that a business requires. Absolutely. And you're totally right on that is, is you learn that. And, and I, I hate the business side of it. That's just not, that's not my hustle. There's people that love business and, and don't really care how the rest of it works. Uh, as long as the business is growing and is successful and, and there's, you know, you can manipulate things and make things work for you. And, and, and that can be fun too, but for me, it's the cars and the craft is always first and um, business is always like that that daunting thing that I have to take care of just to keep things moving. But uh, the tips I've got are find a really good accountant and let them handle the stuff that you really don't want on that end. Figure out payroll. I'm an S-corp now, so there's lots more reporting and monthly payroll and all that stuff. But um, they, they take all the stress out of that for me. And so now it's, you know... If you build stuff and you put it on Instagram, you're going to deal with 18,000 unserious people that want a little chunkier time. And I've just gotten a lot better at saying no. I just I just say no. And, and I've kind of got a pretty good feel for when people are really serious about bringing something to life. And um, there's just a different read about them. Um, so I, I don't want to tell anybody flat out, like, you're not worth my time but my time is super valuable. And so I can't waste it or, you know, any time I spend here that's wasted is time away from my life outside of work. That's already like very dismal. So, um, I just, I just flat out say no. And, and I don't, uh, 
I don't spend too much unwanted time. Like I, I used to take everything that came through the door and, and, get, you know, stop and go through the process. And now it's like, Hmm, I, you know, I can't really tie up and get off track on this huge mega two year, three year build to do your six hour project that you think that's actually more like a 40 hour project in real time, because you have no idea what it's really going to take. Um, and you've got a really optimistic view of your budget. A lot of times success is defined by by the jobs that you actually decline uh, rather than the ones that you take on. And it is very easy. We've talked about this on the podcast numerous times, but it's very easy when you're just getting started and obviously you're hungry for customers and, and hungry for that financial input to just say yes to, to everything. And it's very easy to get yourself into a, a very bad situation, which can spiral out of control. Talking about the financial side of these projects, I mean, I can I can only imagine just from my own experience with my old business, uh, which we weren't doing anything at the level you're doing, but it can be really difficult when you get a, a potential client come through the door and say, hey, look, this is my vision. I want to do this, this and this. Uh, what's it going to cost? That's that's obviously going to be a question that, that crops up. And I mean, you're, you're talking about builds that may take in, in the sort of region of two plus years. How on earth do you even come up with a ballpark to be in for a project of that magnitude? Would you just have incredibly uh, well-resourced and understanding clients? It's a, a little bit of both. Is uh, well, first and foremost, you've got to do one to even know. So you got to. I was fortunate enough to have just a, a salt of the earth, wonderful client on both the. I mean, all the builds in my shop but starting out with the Insanity 240Z and then um, moving into the Ballistic Beige 64 Corvette. I mean, both of those gentlemen, we didn't have any uncomfortable talks about money or time. It was just more of trying to give them an idea and then finding out that I way undersell it every time because it usually takes three times longer than I thought and costs me way more. Um, And it's easier to eat those when you're, you know, covering the mortgage and all your other bills and even the shop bills sometimes with your day job because those first several years don't expect a paycheck. I mean, anything you do make that's a surplus needs to go back into machinery to amplify the builds. But it's it's hard to to really give a time. I mean, it's impossible to give a strict timeline on things that are artistic. Um, and I like to think that the builds I do are pretty far from the cookie cutter uh, you know, here's your LS3, here's your catalog parts. We're going to paint it before we even get the chassis because we're not going to modify anything. It's going to be what it's going to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's probably a better business model, but it's just not what I'm passionate about doing on my small time on this earth. So I'd rather, yeah. you know, eat it here and there and just really love what I do. And and I think that passion comes through and and the people that I'm working for also feel that. And they're part of this process, building something that's bigger than a car sometimes. Sometimes it's a statement. Um, and and then, you know, it's it's a little bit more of a give and take on what we had discussed initially. But I, I always try to set people up um, so that I can over deliver, you know. Um, so I'll, I'll throw a stupid big number at them and, and say, it is what it is. Or if that scares you, then here's probably the time to, to let's part ways as friends here because I don't want to have any, you know, back, back end disappointments of our budget and time frame. Yeah, the the start of a project or before the project's 
even got underway is definitely the the time where you want to find the the number that's going to scare that client and mm-hmm. and make sure that you kind of aligned in terms of of goals and financial expectations because you know if that alignment doesn't exist you can absolutely guarantee that the wheel's going to fall off that project somewhere along the line and it's not going to end well and and no one wants that no it's 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 not good for me or them And back to what we had discussed earlier is that's a really nice way to kind of differentiate between who's serious and who isn't really quick is throw a realistic number at them and see if they're, they're still wanting to have a conversation because there's a big disconnect between the general public and what it takes to bring these cars to, you know, dollar wise, what they're thinking. You know, some people think you throw a hundred thousand dollars at a car, it, it, uh, you know, you're going to get a turnkey thing and it's like, <laughs> that doesn't cover a third, a third of the parts, you know, let alone the, the labor that should be the expensive part. So, I mean, I think it's really easy to walk around a show, the likes of SEMA and look at these cars and, and have zero clue at, at exactly what has gone into creating that finished product in terms mm-hmm. of, as you mentioned, the, the parts, but more importantly, uh, the professional time that, that's gone into it. Yeah. Uh, one last question on this particular sort of uh, angle. In, in terms of the projects you get involved with, how how much of the, the finished product is driven by the client's sort of imagination and sort of what they have in mind versus how much creative input do you get to, to add into the finished product? It, it really does vary. Um, there's different expectations. For instance, um, on the Insanity 240Z, stylistically, that's all me. The the owner kind of just after, you know, we had some structure at first. And then after he saw what I'm putting of myself into this thing and how much I really care about eventually wanting to go to SEMA and, and make a name for myself, I was just giving away hours, you know, like Oprah Winfrey gives out stuff at her show. <laughs> it's just here, a little, one, little bit for you and you and you. And then, you know, eventually we ended up with a serious machine. Uh, But that wasn't necessarily his dream from the get-go. It's just he got to benefit from me being at the right place and the right time in my career to do that. But the beauty and what fueled me to do that was the ability to have those creative choices. The Ballistic Beige Corvette, same thing. Not a lot of strings attached except for to a few more things. So the wheels and the color choice, those were in the interior. Those three were kind of collaborative efforts versus me just saying, this is what we really ought to do. This is what I would like to do. Um, and then that works up to like the 66 Corvette I'm building now. That's clearly the the pinnacle of what I can do. That's working more, more collaboratively than I ever have in coming up with a joint vision on, on so, what we're going to do. Um, but which is a good and a bad thing because it stifles me a little bit creatively at times because it's not what I would choose. And, and so it kind of, my creative brain and mindset, it can be hard to find traction, um, I found. But at the same time, it pushes me in areas also to boundaries I wouldn't have gone. And so I feel like I'm growing as a as a fabricator and designer, um, while at the same time being tormented in some areas, um, which, yeah. which I mean, that's just that just comes with the job. It's you're, you're trying to do something creative in a time frame. And there's no quicker way to find out what you're made of. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Let's move on here and and get this thing wrapped up. I I appreciate your time and we do want to respect it. We could probably go on for for another hour. (laughs) I will also mention that, of course, the the media format of podcasting doesn't really lend itself that nicely to sort of understanding the quality of these projects 
topics that that mm-hmm. you've you've mentioned, and uh, we will try and and link to some of these projects uh, in in the show notes as well as as we'll talk about in a moment your, your social media accounts. But we'll finish up with the same three questions that we ask all of our guests, and uh, the first of those is what's next in the future for yourself and, and KMC. I mean, at the moment uh, you're you're a one man band. Are you looking at expanding, bringing on more help? Are you kind of happy in your your place at the moment? Uh, it would definitely be helpful to grow a little bit within reason. One person, obviously, we talked about my father. And at some point, I think I'm his retirement plan is is he would like to come work for me and play cars. And I told him I'll pay him what he started me off at, <laughs> uh, six, six, six bucks an hour. Seems like a deal. And then, uh, you know, so that's a cool role reversal. But um, also, it's like there's nobody on earth that I could just gel with and work with better. Like, we're we're truly a team. Um, and it's a really a special relationship and all that time we get to spend together. I feel like not everybody gets that relationship. So I'm super yeah. fortunate there. So I'd add him and then kind of just advancing, continuing the the scope upwards. So every day I'm, I'm integrating, like we talked about CAD more and more. As I learn more CAD skills and get a little bit more savvy with it, there's just the sky's the limit. Uh, you know, obviously I'm leaps and bounds and I would never put myself on the same level with like people we talked about, like Magic Mike and uh, M26 Engineering, people that are just truly masters of that craft. That's not me. But I do strive to just get better at it and utilize it more and utilize Send, Cut, Send and services like that more as they add capabilities um, to just just improve the product. Uh, I really would like to get a 3D scanner. Um, that's probably my next jump because there's just a million projects around here I could use it on. And I've got a friend at Reversion Development, Tyler, that does that for me now, but I have to ship the parts there uh, so that there's cost involved and there's a time lag there. And it'd be better to, even if my CAD skills aren't there yet, be able to just shoot that that picture of what the exact part of that car is and then have somebody you know, help me through that process until I can fly on my own on that, um, that and a pull max. And that's kind of, that's all I really need. I mean, I think that the benefit is that uh, just like the other technologies, the the 3D scanning is is becoming more accessible and and coming down in price. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's not going to do the same job as a hundred thousand dollar plus product, but I mean, some basic scans you can now do with the likes of yeah. a modern iPhone. So, you know, yeah. that, that's becoming more and more accessible. All right, uh, moving on. Is there any advice you could give to a younger version of yourself or one of our listeners that's looking to pursue a a similar career path that would maybe have sped up your career development and process, progress, I should say? Uh, If I could tell my younger self to to stick with, I mean, I could have learned CAD and, and all these things much earlier if I could see the tangible result of where that could lead. You know, it was, it's hard to visualize when you're a, 18 year old kid fresh out of high school, or even really, I, I had some high schoolers through here the other day. And I was like, guys, here's your, here's your high school side hustle business, learn CAD, use send, cut, send buy a cheap 3d printer and, and learn about marketing, learn about CAD, learn about making a product. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever floats your boat. Like you've got that all here and you have very little overhead to do any of that. Like if I could have learned that, like I'd be I'd be a decade ahead of where I am now. And I feel like I don't even know what I'd be doing. I'd, I'd, I'd be a lot happier with what I'm building because I'm always chasing that next big, big, cool new thing that I can do. But definitely don't shy away. Like if you're a kid like me and you didn't, I, I don't know how much computer hands-on they have or at high school courses, how much accessibility they have to like SolidWorks before it costs 
six to ten thousand dollars to to buy that and then you have to teach yourself too. Try to latch onto that tech as soon as you can because that's really the future of the industry is additive manufacturing, CAD, uh, subtractive manufacturing will always be cool. You know, I'd love to get a CNC at some point and, and learn CAM and how to operate it. But yeah. It's a really cool time to be in the fabrication industry with the interconnectedness of everybody. I mean, I can see what people in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, I mean, just all over the world, you can see what what's going on and, and a better look into the processes. Like if you want to learn how to purge weld, uh, you know, purge your TIG welds, like you don't have to drive to the local welding store, get told nothing, come home, try to figure it out on your own. You can, I mean, there's probably a thousand people that'll tell you for free on the internet right now and you can access that yeah, absolutely. and then you can go buy the products and it's just it's a it's a really exciting time yeah the, there's never been more access to information out there i mean i guess the only thing i'll add there which is, is really why high performance academy was was founded sort of 10 plus years ago is uh, as more and more information is out there the the challenge does become with some of these more advanced topics is kind of sorting through the fact from fiction because just because someone produces a video and punches it up on YouTube doesn't necessarily mean that the information that they're providing is always spot on. All right, our, our last question for today, Kyle, if people want to follow you, see what you're up to, reach out how are they best to do so. Uh, I try to keep the same kind of handle across all platforms. It's at Casey Kuhnhausen. So K-C-K-U-H-N-H-A-U-S-E-N. And then from there, you can link to, uh, I've got also, I've got my website and all kinds of things in the link, it, podcasts I'm on and so I'll throw this one up there too for people to easily access, although they can probably find it through you if they're listening. And uh, I would also say that I've, I've looked at your courses and I definitely want to hop in on a few of those at some point. So um, I would look into your your service as well and what you guys are doing because I, I know I probably have 20 plus screenshots of stuff that you guys post because you guys always post the coolest race car stuff or that that tight shot of that suspension with a bladed sway bar and it's like that's what i'm trying to learn like yeah hp academy they've got it i'm just all i need is a picture and i can kind of reverse it in my head from there and and then break it into its base parts but uh you guys have always kind of been the forefront like bringing that cool stuff to the general public so i appreciate that oh, thanks for the kind words there kyle all right, we'll put a, a link to your social media accounts in the show notes as well, just to make it super easy for people to find what you're doing. But uh, yeah, great to chat, Kyle. Really appreciate your time. And we look forward to seeing what you're up to make its way to SEMA in the not too distant future. Cheers. Hey, thanks, Andre. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Kyle, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt anywhere in the world. Also, this is a great place to ask any questions you might have too, and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week, a big shout out to Harrison from New Zealand, who's said, I bought the Engine Tuning Fundamentals course a few weeks ago, as I'm getting my project car ready to tune for the first time. The course starts off right at the basics, so I thought it was a waste of time, but I persevered and wow. I thought I knew the basics of engines and how they work, but this course really took my knowledge to the next level. 
Thanks for the kind words there. Glad that you enjoyed the course and got value out of it, Harrison. And if you get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details, we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.